Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. As we've alluded to on our other shows, this offseason, our Crack Rackets team attempted to speak with every Power 5 men's and women's head coach employed throughout the college tennis world. We asked each of them about their team's respective 2021 seasons and what we should expect from them here in 2022. Of course, we also offered them a platform to share their thoughts on some of the big picture topics in college tennis. It is a fantastic series that our team is ecstatic to finally start sharing with the broader college tennis community over the next six weeks. Fans can expect no fewer than 10 episodes a week to be posted on this feed. A huge shout out to our friends at Tennis Point for their support with this series. Remember, go to tennis-point.com right now. Use that promo code CR15 to express your thanks. With all of that said, we're ready to get to today's episode. So Westoff, hit those credits. Let's start today's show. Joining us on the podcast once again today, a returning champion here to our Cracked Interview Show. Of course, you may know him best as a three-time All-American singles player at Notre Dame. Of course, I know him now as the head coach of the Notre Dame men's tennis team. Welcome back to the show, Coach Ryan Satchery. Coach, welcome. How are you doing today? Alex, couldn't be better, my man. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is always a pleasure. And look, I know we've talked about this before, but just to get right into it, you are now coaching the school where you were a three-time All-American, and yeah, I know there was some pro tennis thrown in between, but you know, from the pro circuit right to Baylor, right into the college tennis coaching ranks, what is it about college tennis that you have gravitated towards your entire life? Yeah, you know, for me, junior tennis, college tennis, pro tennis, the college level was was by far and away my favorite. Uh, I think just playing for your team, playing for your school, being a part of something bigger than just yourself is what has really, um, you know, attracted me to this level. And it's the best uh, for my performance and, and, you know, as a player. Um, and just like I said, for me, what resonates the most is being a part of something bigger than myself and, and for playing for an entire university. Do you guys have the banners on the wall? Do you have to stare at like a 19 year old version of yourself every day where you're just like, come on. Yeah, true story. The, the we do we do have the all American banners yeah. up on the, up on our wall, and and the picture that was chosen. This was during the five year period where I was not coaching or playing. <laughs> I guess for Notre Dame yeah. was a uh, a picture of me with literally orange hair. Um, <laughs> true, true story. So this is my junior year. Uh, the summer the summer prior to my junior year, I'd, I'd gone straight from the season into like a USTA training camp, mm-hmm. played nine weeks, and somewhere around week six or seven, I just kind of lost my mind. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, you know what, I'm going to lighten up my hair a little bit. And uh, <laughs> and ultimately lost a battle with a bottle of Sun In, as, as all good, uh, you know, 1990s kids growing up did. And and so that's what that's what lives in infamy at the Eck Tennis Pavilion is is a picture of me with the orange hair. You strike me as a summer ginger, so it actually makes exactly. sense. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it fits I will well. say, I will say that my wife started dating me right when I still had the orange hair. So uh, for better or for worse. <laughs> Maybe brings into question her judgment as well. No, so. it's, I have a similar story. Well, it's not related to me, as you can tell, married to the game. But my dad's first date he went on with my mom, she had blue contacts in. 
And it wasn't until they're like three months in that she stopped wearing them. And my dad was like, wait, what happened what here? Happened? Yeah, exactly. like something has changed. Sorry, mom, for sharing that story. Um, but yeah, no, that I, I love that. And, you know, again, I, I am curious, since we're off the rails here, you look at, you know, again, when you were at Notre Dame and you were at the era late 90s, which saw some of the best teams in college tennis, including the 98 Stanford men's tennis team, which I think dropped, what, two points throughout the course of the season, something crazy. Two or three. Like, yeah, yeah, it was crazy. Is that the best team in college tennis history? You know, I think the older generation would argue about some UCLA teams where sure. Jimmy Connors is playing three, et cetera. But, I mean, what, Alex Kim got to 65 in the world and he was playing <laughs> six for them? I mean, it's hard to argue that, that that isn't the best team, at least in the more modern era. And, and yeah, the Bryan brothers and Jeff Abrams and Ryan Walters and obviously Goldie and and then, like I said, you have Alex Kim, World uh, ATP number 65, bringing up the rear at number six. That was that was a loaded, loaded team. Mm -hmm. And the reason I ask that is to get into, obviously, nowadays, and you look at what your team was able to accomplish in 2021. And, you know, on paper, a 15 and 11 record, it's not going to blow you away. But I'm curious, obviously, that high was perhaps as high as college tennis has been, but in your you know 20 years now in the sport, do you think the depth in college tennis, the talent that it takes not only to be number one perhaps, but to be number, say, 22, is college tennis deeper now than it was in the past? Yeah, no question. And I'd, I'd, I'd take it even a, a, a step further and say the difference between the level of, of player playing number one mm -hmm. and playing number six is is much, much smaller than it ever used to be. And um, you know, yeah, I think there's just more good players nationally, you know, probably more internationally coming to, to college now. And so, you know, your, your mid-major programs are better. Your, your high major programs are better. Um, the depth that takes eight, nine, 10, really, really good players to have a good team, you know, throughout the course of the season. And so, you know, uh, no question that the depth is, is better now than it ever was. Mm -hmm. And to translate that to your team last year, and this is fascinating because, again, I've done too many of these coaching interviews now, and as such, I get to look at all of the trends and, you know, how many singles players are played and how many doubles team is each coach playing. And, you know, I look at your singles lineup, and you go back to, I think it was late January, you guys played Tennessee. And you had the same singles lineup in that Tennessee match as you did at the end of the year come the NCAA second round against Illinois. And, you know, again, talking at the depth, talking at the options, that was surprising to me. Like, I, it, it's very rare you see that sort of continuity from start to finish. Yeah, yeah, we did have one change. Matthew Shave was in our singles lineup in the beginning of the year. William Howes took his place at the end of the year. But they kind of did a straight line substitution at number yeah, four singles force. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it's funny. It does sometimes gravitate back to that original lineup. Mm -hmm. Um, there were many iterations in the middle there. We dealt with COVID as everybody else did and, and some injuries like they always happen. And, you know, our, our schedule, our team every single year, um, I, I don't build our schedule to come close to going undefeated. We, we try to play the very best that we can play. And, you know, being in the ACC but not being in the geograph geographical footprint of the ACC allows us to play all the top Big Ten teams around here. Obviously not last year, but then you throw in Kentucky, Tennessee, et cetera. And, and we're, we're trying my philosophy for better or for worse is to try to load up our schedule as tough as we can make it. And, and, and hopefully the guys grow and develop, um, throughout the course of not only that season, but their four years here. And, and, uh, I, I truly believe that's a big part of player development. And so we're always committed to, to playing the toughest schedule we can play. And, 
and to your point, many times at the end of the year, the, the record itself doesn't look great, but hopefully we're playing pretty darn good tennis by the end of the year. And you, you said a lot of things there that I want to hit on over the course of this interview, but one of the things being, you know, I'm talking about rule changes and big picture topics. Last year, you know, the 500 rule was waived, and yep. I just did an interview with Oklahoma head coach Nick Crowell. They were under 500, but I think anyone who watched college tennis last season knows that was an NCAA team, and they beat Denver in the first round and validate that selection. Uh, obviously, it's a bit of a power five slant, but I am curious. Do you think the 500 rule should go away permanently? I think it should because it, it, it allows for not always getting the top teams into the NCAA tournament. There's always going to okay. be a loophole or, or, or an exception where you have a team like Oklahoma last year, maybe that doesn't have a 500 record, but is clearly one of the top, you know, 40 teams in the country and deserves that large bid. And so, you know, the goal of the NCAA championships is to get the best teams in that you can get. And, and I think anything that prevents that from happening um, really is it great for our sport. That being said, the way to protect yourself, and we do this a lot, is to play some doubleheader matches. And that, that does help smaller programs get to put a bigger program on their schedule, gives them more exposure, and, and, and helps maybe create a little bit of buzz around their program. So I understand the logic. I, I do think that it's not necessarily the best thing for the sport, but I do see some positives to it as well. Mm -hmm. And with that said, you talk about the doubleheaders you scheduled. We go into last season. You guys play Ball State. And let's be clear, no fall, right? And so, you know, what is, it's not really even about, you know, the Axels and the Richards and the McCormicks of the world. It's the freshmen who haven't gotten to play any matches, don't have that continuity. What did your team learn from that doubleheader against Ball State, where obviously you clip them in the first, they get you 4-3? And I'm curious how a loss like that early in the season sets the tone moving on. Yeah, you know, it, it wasn't a it wasn't a great day. Um, yeah, sure. You know, it was it was tough, and and uh, but we did learn, and mm -hmm. and I think more than anything, you know, you, you hear the expression that sports maybe don't build character, but they reveal it, and and that was that was a gut check for us. You're right, we had not played many competitive matches for nine months. You know, I think that was our second playing date of the year, and 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 you know when we didn't have a fall season for some of our guys that was again their second or third match in in nine months and so to be able to recover from that rebound from that um and move forward and have a pretty darn good year after that um you know was was a testament to the character level of our guys and and like i said it was we we had some tough conversations coming out of it uh, um i i don't think anybody felt really good about where we were at that moment but um, we rallied around one another and, and uh, rebounded. And, and like I said, I give the guys 100% credit for that because they did have a, a, a good season after that and, and uh, kind of turned a bad moment into a galvanizing one for our team. Yeah, and obviously one of the, yeah, as you mentioned, you guys uh, win five of your last six matches to close out the regular season. And it felt like by the end of the year, Axel Neve, who obviously returning this year, one of your seniors on your roster, felt like he had really clicked. By the end of yeah. that season, he was starting to really emerge as one of those, you know, top 20, borderline top 10 guys in college tennis. What did you see from him last season, particularly, again, given the fact there was no fall? Like, you didn't have the chance to work with him, and there wasn't that natural course of, well, we know he's going to get better because he's put in X amount of hours as a junior. What allowed him to make that sort of jump? Yeah, good question. And, and again, all credit goes to Ax. I mean, it started with what he did when the pandemic hit, you know, he, he from from March of 2020 until 
uh, he, we got back to school in August. He had really put in a lot of work on the court, off the court, came back to Notre Dame as, as a full-level, better player. And then the biggest thing is we were allowed to practice last fall. We just couldn't compete. Sure. Every single day he shows up and he's he's the at the being the best he can be on that given day and his practice set record this is a true story his practice set record in the fall because we competed a lot internally was 26 and one coming out of the fall in sets and and you know and in that that level of competitiveness that level of drive carried over into drills we're doing i mean it was a rare day where he lost anything and and so he he put in a ton of work over the summer came back competed his tail off in what we could do in practice um and that set the table for a good season and, and you're right i mean he, he got off to a little bit of a shaky start didn't play his best tennis right away but i think the last match he lost prior to the ncaa tournament was at wake forest um in early february and then he won his last 15 or so regular season matches and you know you're playing number one in the acc you're playing some pretty good darn players and and uh, darn good players and and uh he he did emerge as one of the best in the country you know I have to ask, and this is not to take away, who was the one who beat him? Tristan McCormick, yeah, indoors. I, I was going to guess it. He just was serving bombs, and it was just one of those days. Yeah, T-Mac got him 7-5 in, in a set uh, indoors here. and and uh, But, no, it, it was, it, you know, and obviously on any given day, Tristan and Richie can beat anybody, and and but but Axe's attitude and demeanor and and uh, the amount of confidence he built from that summer and fall was was remarkable. And like I said, it set the table for him to have an unreal season as we got going. Yeah, and you know you mentioned two names there, Richie and Tristan, who obviously you know not, uh, last year was their final year at, with the program. But you look at that top three; that's a darn good top three coach. And I'm curious. You know, looking at the stats from last season from your guys, I'm not saying it was a narrow pathway, but I think the, you know, you're always looking for pathways to four, right? And it felt like a lot of times you guys could ride, let's take doubles, let's take the top three. We feel pretty good about that. And if we get anything from four, five, six, it's just a bonus for us. And I'm not trying to diminish their efforts. I'm just saying that's a testament to how good your top three was. Sure. Did you feel that as a team? And I'm curious what having a top three like that does for the other guys on the roster who are seeing those levels of success. Yeah, you know, it definitely felt that way. And, and you know, I, I don't know that you can walk into the level of competition we're playing against. They also have pretty good, you know, top threes as well. And so I don't think you count on winning all three, but you can count on, you know, winning two of those three most yeah. days. And, and so, you know, then you're looking at, okay, we've got to get two more points out of the other, you know, four that are out there. And, and I, I think certainly um, – Going back to to Axel more than more than anything, I think it was the process by which he got better, and the process that made him a consistent winner. That's what our guys got to learn from and see the most. And 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 I think what we've seen this fall, and and what I hope carries over into this spring, is the example that he set every single day in terms of how you work, how you get better, the attitude he always had. Um, winning is a byproduct we talk about that all the time success is a byproduct of what you put into it and for our guys to be able to see firsthand what it what he did and what it takes to be a great player uh day in day out that's the biggest lesson i think and, and hopefully that translates into them becoming the consistent winners that we're talking about the other three guys were 
Talk to me about Connor Fu because I watched his growth last season. I was at that Illinois match, and if memory serves me correct, I think he played Hunter Hack on quarter five. And he did. That was a fun match. There's just, again, yep. there's a fight to Connor. I really, really liked. And I know that's an intangible thing, and you obviously get to see it more than I do. But 13 and 10 in singles last year. That's built. That's what you build off of, and it, I just feel like Connor's a guy who could be in position to have a very good season this year. He could, for sure. Mm-hmm. I love Connor Fu. Um, yeah. He he's, I think, just from a physical standpoint, he's a tremendous athlete. His his mm-hmm. combination of strength and speed, explosiveness, is pretty pretty unique. He's, he's up there top. 10% probably in college tennis. And that gives him, you know, the ability to, to separate from an opponent. He, he's, he's typically the, the faster and the stronger of the two that are out there playing when he's, when he's competing. And, you know, that gives him a great, great opportunity to be successful every day. Um, and, and his game is developed. He's, he's worked hard and he's, he's become a better tennis player to complement the athletic skills that he has. And, and you're right, he battles, he fights. And, and uh, again, when you have that as your, your uh, kind of base, to, to, from which to build around, good things are going to happen. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. And again, as you look at last season, you guys get a good win in your first match uh, in the NCAA tournament before getting knocked out by Illinois. Again, now it, it, it feels like that was sort of a turning of a page, though, because, you know, Richie out, yep. Tristan out, Will out, and yet there was still a nucleus of guys who got to go through that experience. And I'm curious how that experience shaped their summer and ultimately what you saw from the guys this fall. Yeah, it's been a really fun fall, to be quite honest with you. You're right. We had six guys uh, graduate out of the program, two two graduate students, four seniors, and we brought in six new ones. And so it really has been a turning of the page, which has been a lot of fun in a lot of ways. And and the two grad transfers we have in, Peter Conklin from, from Dartmouth and Addy Vashista from St. John's, have both added so much to our program. Both are our top one percenters in terms of just character, work ethic, all the things that they bring to the table. And, and that's really added a dynamic. Uh, and, and at the same time, they have this experience, but it's, but it's all new, right? It's, it's being at Notre Dame is new for them. And so there's that fresh exuberance as well. And, and that's been really cool to see. And, and then we've got four freshmen as well that have, have all done pretty darn well this fall. So it's uh, you're right. We, we returned, you know, three or four guys that played significant roles for us last year and Connor Fu, Axel and, and Matthew Shea and, and uh, uh, John Mark Malkowski is a sophomore. Now he got a little bit of a taste during uh, the middle portion of the season last year, too. So those four guys brought back some experience. And then with the new guys coming in, um, it, it, it was it was a fun fall from the standpoint of kind of reestablishing the culture that we want to establish. Um, with all the new guys, uh, a lot of communication from us as coaches and, and frankly, from our team leaders as well, the returning guys and put them on a different level. You know, Connor Fu and Matt Shea in particular were young guys on the team last year. Um, and, and, you know, there was a gap between, you know, Richie, Tristan, Axel, and then the rest of the team in just in terms of seniority, experience, level, et cetera. Now those guys are, are some of the elder statesmen. And, and that's what's really fun about college sports is, Every, every year is a new collection of guys, a new dynamic. And so it's put them in a different light, put them in a different role. Um, they've helped educate the, the new guys as far as how things go around here. And uh, it's, been, it's been really fun. It's, been a, it's a really good dynamic we get going here. 
Well, it, it's so interesting to hear you talk about, you know, again, the balance on the roster and trying to, you know, keep, you know, the, the finding the perfect blend between senior, junior, sophomore, freshman. And, you know, that brings me to one of my big questions I wanted to ask you here. Big picture questions, I should say, is, you know, you look at your team and according to tennis recruiting, number 13 class in the nation last year, and you bring in, you know, a bunch of solid freshmen. But as you mentioned, you bring in a couple of transfers as well this season. And that gets, gets me, you know, to I'm curious in recruiting right now. And obviously it's a bit pronounced given the fact that there's the COVID year of extraability. There's five class of high school graduates as such. There's just more players to go around, more talent to go around. But how are you balancing traditional recruiting, bringing in freshmen, developing them within the program with the additional aspect of, well, you know, I need a five, I need a six, I need a guy for one year to put a, push us to that next level. How do you balance those two things? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and I think every every coach you talk to probably has a little bit of a different approach for for me to be candid with you, you know, it's not the easiest to get kids in as undergraduate transfers into sure. Notre Dame. And so what I've been really trying to pay attention to over the last year or so is is making sure we're not at a point two years down the road once that COVID eligibility runs out that we're in trouble roster wise um, with too many young guys and not that group of sophomores and juniors in the middle there. And so we're trying to put more into the traditional recruiting, let's say. Um, mm-hmm. But to your point, if there's a scenario that comes along where we can add a dynamic graduate transfer, that would be amazing and, and uh, you know, uh, really helps our team. Do you think your degree in economics is paying off more now than ever before when you have to balance that four and a half? I can tell you one thing confidently, Alex. I've yeah. never used my degree in economics one day in my life, and, and uh, I probably forgot everything I learned. But uh, no, you know, it's we're we're all just trying to figure this out, and and uh, uh, you know, trying to do the best job we can with with the uh, the rules the way they are. Yeah, see, I thought it was you were going to give me the macro approach versus the micro approach. You're going to explain the supply side of the four and a half versus the demand side. I was ready. I had my notes oh. up, um, you know. But we, yeah, you're right. <laughs> we'll, we'll put that on the back burner. Uh, we'll save that for next time. But I'm also curious, and obviously, I know this is something you've explored as well. Is international recruiting essential in modern college tennis? Is that just something you have to have that blend? I think it is. I think it is. You know, the level, like as we talked about earlier, has gotten so high, right, mm-hmm. uh, amongst college tennis programs in general. And, and I look at it this way. We have to expand our pool to to not only, you know, American kids, but international kids as well to find the best fits who are also the best players we can bring in. You know, we're, we're playing in the most or certainly one of the most competitive tennis conferences in the country. As I say, we, I try to build our non-conference to be – really elite in, in in that regard as well and so we need to have good teams and and the only way you can do that is to to have a broad base of, of recruits to choose from and and, and uh, hopefully attract to come here and and um, I, I do think the ship has left the station in terms of teams that are only Americans I think it's pretty hard to do that now is NIL factoring into your recruiting at all at this point or is that something still it's in early it's early stages do you think it will factor in I think it will you know, we, we're lucky here at Notre Dame. Our student welfare and development office has an entire arm, uh, three employees that are dedicated to the brand enhancement of our student athletes and dedicated to NIL education and positioning our all, all sport athletes to, to help market themselves and put themselves in the best position to take advantage of NIL. Um, you know, 
I don't, I wouldn't say we recruit a ton with it, but it's there certainly. And, and, and obviously being at Notre Dame, uh, the brand of our school is, is pretty, uh, pretty strong and, and, and certainly kids can benefit from that. But um, no, I, th I think it's, it's here to stay certainly. And it's only going to continue to get bigger and bigger. If Axel Neve has to pay for another meal while in South Bend, I'll be disappointed. I'm just putting that out there for, <laughs> for Notre Dame Nation to hear. Of course, in all in a legal sense, in a legal sense. That's right. That's yeah, right. right. You know, all course. through the proper channels. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, well, with all that said, obviously, I, I do want to get back to talking about your guys' fall and, you know, again – Plenty of doubles teams, plenty of experimentation for you guys this year. First and foremost, though, I know you guys had practice last year, but how nice was it to, for you, for the team, to just get back to a normal semblance of a fall? Alex, it was so so much better. I mean, it, it <laughs> you know, I mean, it's uh, practice was great last fall. Two three weeks into it though, and it's like, okay, when when are we competing? When's our when's our <laughs> next thing? And it's like, oh, we're waiting till January. And so, um, you know, that that was tough and, and so to have a normal normal go of it this fall was was amazing and and yeah we we really tried to have each guy play as much as we could we hosted a, a men's open even after the fall season was done and a, a, a utr event and um to your point with the doubles try to play as many different combos as we can play and um give ourselves the most options for su a successful lineup once uh, january rolls around so I'm, on that doubles note, I'm curious, in the fall, and I'm, I know it's a balance of both, but are you searching for continuity or are you trying to implement the system? Like obviously for last year you lose Neve, Ciamara, and so you're going to make some new pair, pairings anyways, but right. what's that focus for you? Because obviously yeah. you guys are a team that's priding yourselves on the doubles performance. Yeah, yeah, we've had pretty good doubles, and, and that's got to be something that we do well this year. And, and mm -hmm. honestly, this year was different. Typically I try to, try to lock in on some yeah. – combinations maybe halfway through the fall if not earlier um you know last year's team returned virtually everybody from the season yeah. previous and so we were going to roll with our doubles the way they were uh this year with the six new guys we we were experimenting a lot and so this this season this year in particular it was it was a little bit different plus Axel was off kind of doing his own schedule away from the rest of the team with a lot of pro events, things like that. So he wasn't able to play as much with some of the other guys, but, um, and he'll certainly be in our doubles lineup, but, uh, no, this year was more about experimentation. It just different from year to year. Yeah, I, I'm good. By the way, well, that's breaking news. Axel's going to be in the doubles lineup folks. <laughs> for those who didn't know, uh, true or false, you made Alex Lawson. <laughs> no way. No, Alex, <laughs> Alex, uh, I'm so proud of that guy. I mean, he, he came to he came to Notre Dame as a really talented athlete. Um, who I, was, I disagree. He was yeah, he exactly. was talented. I don't know about an athlete. His calves were the size of <laughs> yeah. uh, you know my torso, even when he was 17 years old. But uh, no, he, he he has matured so much. He matured here at Notre Dame. Um, had some hard times, you know, in terms of breaking through, and 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 there were some tears shed and and. You know, Schechterly and Chris James were my assistant coaches at the time, and and we can all tell you some some Alex Lawson stories. But man, that kid has uh, has worked and worked and worked, and is 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 a professional now in the truest sense of the word. And he's uh, he's earned every amount of success that he's gotten, and it's been really really cool watching that progress happen. Did you get to watch his one singles match in qualifying at that Challenger? Did he did he talk to you about that? <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, no. It's it's uh, every time he he pops up in a draw, it's like oh this is a this is a, a big moment for us to see Alex <laughs> play singles again. 
So, but I tell you what, true, true, true story. We can joke about his singles level. He was the one who clinched our uh, our win over North Carolina, Alex's yeah. senior year when he was when they were number one in the country, and mm-hmm. he beat uh, he beat Robert Kelly at number four singles. But um, yeah, no, he he uh, he had a great career here. Did a lot of great things for Notre Dame and at Notre Dame, and and he's done really well on the tour too. Yeah. Well, the reason I bring that up is obviously his game has translated extraordinarily well in the professional doubles ranks, and I well, I always like to pick coaches' brains about these sorts of things now. The way the game has changed. Do you coach serve and volley as rigorously now as, say, you were coached on it in doubles in the late 90s? I know, you know, my coach back in the day, it's just you're serving and volleying. First serve, second right. serve and doubles, that's what you do. I feel like nowadays, again, is that is it as is it as cutthroat as that? No, no, yeah. definitely not. Um, you know, I will say this, though. I, I feel like the, the game of doubles is trending back towards more serve and volley. I, I, I'm a believer, though. I think singles, doubles, whatever, you've got to let individual players play to their strengths. Certainly, you want to develop their weaknesses and things they're not as good at. Um, but, you know, the, you, you want to put them in a position to be successful. And for a guy like Axel Nev, who, who's rock solid from the baseline, and, and you know, it, it makes sense to let him serve and stay back. And put him in the best position for him. Um, but like I said, I do see trending back towards the serve and volley a little bit. And, and uh, you know, we, we want to give all of our guys the tools to be able to do both serve and stay back and serve and volley, but um, allow them to play what, what gives them the best chance to win. Yeah, and obviously that sort of development more than anything just takes time. And with time, yep. you know, said, I'm, I'm curious – Obviously, you're at the point of the season now, eight-hour rule, and you know you're working your 25 dates and thinking of a guy like Alex Lawson who had pro aspirations and a guy like Axel Navy, and I'm sure others on your roster who have professional tennis aspirations. Is the eight-hour rule, the 25 competitive dates, and I know those are NTAA edicts, but is that just enough to reflect the demands of modern tennis? Great question. I would say no to the eight-hour rule. I think that's, that's silly, and, and that's a cookie-cutter approach by the NCAA to, you know, kind of legislate all sports together. Tennis is not like other sports, right? It's a skill-based sport. It's a repetition-based sport. Um, and the reality is that I would I would wager 90% plus of the elite-level players in college tennis want to be practicing more than four hours because it's, it's eight hours, but it's only four on court in a yeah. given week. And so, you know, I think that's, that's a challenge. Um, to, to continue to train at the level that they need to train at. Uh, 25 dates, you know, I think I don't have as much of an issue with that because I think once you get rolling in the spring, 21 or 22 dates, whatever a team uses, is, is plenty. Plus then you add in three more for national indoors, um, you know, which are exempt dates, plus the NCAA tournament and the conference tournaments. That's, that's a lot of tennis. I, I would say more the, the training piece in the fall is, is not – not where it needs to be from a tennis standpoint, but um, again, it's a one size fits all approach by the NCAA. And the reason I bring it up, and I think this is just to get college tennis fans passionate about this issue. Are there times during this point of the year where, you know, players are coming up to you? Let's just say it's Connor Foon. He's saying, coach, I could use a pointer or two on my forehand. And you have to say, sorry, buddy. Like I just can't right now. Yeah. Yeah. We're in that mode right now. You know, final exam start tomorrow. So, Last Friday, we were not allowed to work with our guys at all, and mm-hmm. and you know you have you have guys that that have lighter final exam schedules than others, and want to get on the court with you, and and want to work with you, and and you can't, and so it it for sure 
uh, that exists for all programs. It's, that's a college tennis issue. Um, but uh, it is, you, you feel like you're not doing the student athletes um, the service you should be doing them when you when when they want something that you can't provide and yeah. and that's what's uh probably most challenging about the legislation sure and you know you talk about that development period i had a fascinating conversation with south carolina head coach josh goffey which plug alert everyone can listen to here on the cracked interviews podcast feed where you know development is something he really focuses on and one of his Ayers, I suppose, with the current composition of the schedules, you don't really have a development period in college tennis. Like, yes, you have the fall, which has plenty of individual events, but, you know, A, if the purpose of the fall is to prepare for the spring, you start playing hidden duels, you start doing all of these different things versus, you know, again, and I'll get to the funkier ideas with his idea of the schedule, but I guess I'll just start here. Do you feel that college tennis lacks a training block? Does the current schedule hinder the development? Yeah, for sure. I mean, sure. you know, I, I would argue too, and, and every school has the ability to, to shape their 144-day calendar the way that they want. I realize that. But, you know, I, I think when you look at trying to get enough matches in the fall um, and, and you know, space those out appropriately where each guy's playing three or four dates and then probably one or two other tournaments on their own, um, you know, you're not able to start practice then until after January 1st. And then before you know it, you're playing dual matches. They are worse opening the season January 16th. And, and so there's not really a full block to, to get ready for the season even in January. And so, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, my, my thought would be is if, if there would be a way almost to, to either start practice earlier push the start of the season back a little bit further. Um, you know, you want to compete before kickoff weekend. You want to be sharp for kickoff weekend. And so you're playing matches, like I said, January 15th, January 20th, the latest. Um, you know, I, I, I would think that that January period would be a great training training block time. And but we're just not able to do it based on the need for competition prior to some big events that are early in the year. Coach Goffey suggested flipping the schedule. So what you do is you'd be like a soccer or one of those early August sports that that's when you're playing your first dual match. You do the team in the fall and then you use the spring for individuals and you use the spring for individual development and you separate the NCAA team and individual tournament. And, you know, again, really create two separate blocks of the season. I wish listeners could see the face coach Satchery is making right now. Where he's, <laughs> there's a combination of intrigue and craziness where I'm, I'm very used to getting that look now. Um, but no, I'm, I'm just curious if that idea resonates with you at all, because it is it just does feel like well, I guess the, the crux of it is what are we doing with the fall? Like you right. play the All-American and then you get to the regionals and then you have the national fall championships. But it's like, didn't we just see the All-Americans and, right. you know, more players are playing the Little Rock future than they are playing even at the fall Nats. And so I guess big pictures, what do you view the role of the fall as? Yeah, no, look, I, I, and it's, it's evolving. I mean, that's, yeah. that's for sure. I mean, the, the approach to the fall now in 2021 is way different than it was 10 years ago. Sure. Um, you know, the proliferation of professional tournaments, the addition of UTR events um, has, has changed the landscape. And, and so when you have players that have those pro aspirations, and even if they don't, but they're at a stage developmentally where those type of events are what's going to help take them to the next level, you've got to incorporate those into the schedules in the fall. And so it's become a lot more individualized, which you, you referenced the hidden dual phenomenon that's taking place now. Mm -hmm. That's kind of counteracting the, the you know, the, those two kind of things compete with one another. Uh, I think the ideal fall schedule in my mind 
is uh, a, a couple of dates dedicated to taking a player to, you know, a, a level that's appropriate for him base sure. tournament. So whether it's a future challenger, perhaps, um, or the all American, you know, for guys that are trying to break through to that level, whatever the case may be, a couple of individual dates that are appropriate for each player. And then maybe a, a couple of hin dual events that get your younger guys uh, and even your older guys too, back ready for team competition, right? When you're all, there's something different. It's a different feeling when you're out there next to your, your, your brothers and, and your teammates and, and, and competing for the same, the same thing. And, and so, you know, I, I think it's a combination of the two of those things. Our approach candidly is to try to find what's going to help take each guy to the next level. And, and that's different, right? Your top of the lineup guys, they need different things than, guys that are trying to break in from seven into the lineup, right? Or, or maybe they were low lineup guys last year and they want to play middle lineup this year. Those are all different events. And so re really trying to tailor it to each individual guy. Um, I like the fall the way it is from the standpoint of that being uh, the developmental time, helping sure. each guy, again, make that next jump. Um, but, you know, Josh's idea is an interesting one. And, and uh, I, I do think there's a very different approach to fall and spring and, and whatever we do, we need to be intentional about how we build this as, as uh, time goes forward. Yeah, I'm definitely going to steal the pro tennis proliferation movement as something I say moving forward. Cause that's <laughs> just a great phase phrase coach. So yeah, I love that. And yeah, no, to your point, I mean, it is, I, I do wonder my, my, I don't know if this is a concern. The only concern would be if we're not able to see them as fans, but like, if you are a coach, why wouldn't you just play as many hidden duels as possible in the fall? Like, is there, I don't know if concern's the right word, but it would yeah. you, it'd shock you off. We see a 50% spike in the next like two seasons. It wouldn't for me if we just see hidden duels emerge in the fall. No, because they're a lot of fun. Honestly, yeah. they're the most fun events you can play. And, and, uh, you know, I think back to my own playing time and, and, and even, you know, just talking to our guys, like what, what experiences, when you look back on your four years of college tennis, what experiences do you remember the most? And anything coming out of the fall is typically, unless they won on a huge run, like a all American or a grand slam, something like that. They always talk about in duels or some sort of team related event. Um, I think the, the, the concern I have with hidden duels, and, and I'm sure I'm not the only one that shares this is that you peg a kid yeah. into a spot and he does not have the ability to, to break out of that spot in a Hindu event. Whereas you play a flighted tournament or you go to more of an open tournament, you know, your, your guy that you would have played at number six in the hidden duel has a chance to win the whole thing and has a chance to look at, look at an example. That's not on my team, but in my region is JJ Tracy at Ohio state. Sure. I mean, he, he had an unbelievable fall. And, and, but if, if, if Ty would have only done hidden duels, he's only maybe playing five, six, four at the highest and doesn't get a chance to be eight in the country or whatever he is right now. And, and I, I think you want to always allow for moments like that for your, for your kids. That said, I guarantee you we see Tracy at five and six to start the season. <laughs> no my word's doubt. not yours. Yeah. My, okay, good. Hey, I love it. Um, no, well, with all of that said, and again, you've talked about the growth you've seen from your guys this fall. And I know the full schedule is not out yet, but kickoff weekend, you're headed to Winston-Salem. And it's you guys. It's obviously Wake Forest, SMU, Michigan. You know, that's a loaded region where just as likely to go 2-0 and as 0-2 if you're any of these teams. Uh, obviously, it starts off strong there. And now I'm curious, Big Ten being open again, what's the schedule look like for you guys? How do you yeah. have it all set up? Yeah, no, it's we have a, a couple of dates. Uh, we, we, we play the Broncos of Western Michigan to uh, to kind of open our, our dual match season here in, in a few weeks. And then 
uh, right into kickoff weekend, like you said, after that. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, when, when Michigan drafted to go there to Winston-Salem as the four seed, I don't think any of the three of us were, were really excited to see them as the four. But uh, no, it's, it's why you go, right? It's why you play. It's You, you want to, again, create great experiences for your guys and great developmental opportunities. And, and as a team, we're certainly going to get tested. We, we played Memphis early on in the season, too. And then, you know, once kickoff weekend is done, Illinois, Northwestern, Michigan, Ohio State, our, our normal routine uh, here in the Midwest. And, and uh, you know, you, you better you better be ready to rock and roll because those are all going to be tough matches. And, um, you know, a lot of a lot of fun before ACC season starts then in early March. Mm-hmm. I'm getting up to South Bend at least once this year. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I got to get out of Indianapolis. It's just I need to get I really the truth is I don't think I've left the house in like three days. But that's just a me problem because you know we do these <laughs> podcasts from home. So I'm like the prospect of a journey sounds delightful. Oh, no, come on up. February 12th, 13th, we play Illinois on Saturday at four and Northwestern Sunday at noon. And, and both should be pretty darn good matches. So. Uh, if you're playing Northwestern, it's a guarantee. I'll drive with Dalton. We'll come watch Presley. Play. There you go. Uh, yeah, there that's go. perfect. I love it. Um, no, well, then with all that said, let's have some fun here down the home stretch i've enjoyed asking this question to coaches so i'm just curious because i like to see it shows me the mindset if you could re-coach any match from your career what would it be <laughs> well off the top of my head because you asked about it probably that ball state match last year um <laughs> now i mean in terms of re-coaching gosh uh you is know, it the losses that you turn to more like i would like to re-coach this great win we had over north carolina you're like nah that one's fine no, it's always the losses. I think, you know, you hear about any competitor, they hate to lose a lot more than they love to win. And and uh, no, you, you think about the ones that were right there for you to take, and maybe you could have made this adjustment or that adjustment, and, and it would have paid off. But, um, you know, look, it's it's all part of it. I guess as I've gotten older and, and done this longer and longer, you, you realize the losses probably help you even more than the wins do, right? The wins give you confidence, give you that belief, but the losses tell you where you need to go. Uh, in terms of coaching your team and, and for the players in terms of where they need to grow as players. And, and, uh, but uh, no, there's, there's no doubt the losses always stick out there more than the wins. How many of those adjustments involve Alex Lawson? <laughs> well, you know what? He, he did a pretty darn good job. So uh, may, maybe early in his career, taking him out of the lineup uh, okay. a few, a few times, but uh, no, that's just a dig it out right there. But, <laughs> no, um, no, it's uh he, he, he was awesome. He did great. Yeah. Give me, and again, they're all great. I know that. But your favorite player to coach on court throughout your tenure, there's got to be one guy, the passion, whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, Quentin Monahan was a pretty special kid to coach. Right? And, yeah. and uh, you know, he, he you always talk, talk to your guys about having two different personalities, the one off the court and the one on the court. And that flip really switched with him. And he, uh, anybody that, that played with him or against him knew that he was as fierce of a competitor as you could possibly find. And it was pretty cool to watch him do what he did throughout his career and and uh, and achieve what he achieved. Yeah, no, again, super, super special talent. All right, with that in mind, let's get funky. Let's talk format. Obviously, I've got some thoughts. And I'm curious for you because, you know, again, back when you were playing two out of three sets in the singles, full ad scoring, and I'm pretty sure you were pro sets by the late pro 90s. Not, yeah, not yep. two out of three. And so that said, has no ad grown on you? Are you fine with the format as is? You know what? I've always been one that liked no ad. I, I, oh. I still believe that the best players are the best players. I remember when ATP doubles made that change before college mm-hmm. tennis did, 
you know, it was like, oh my gosh, you know, the Bryan brothers were number one in the world and what's going to happen. They're going to lose so many matches, you know, 11, nine and, and yeah. 10 point breakers. And no, the Bryan yeah. brothers were the best in the world because they won in, in, in the biggest moments and, and their record in 10 point tiebreakers was better than anybody else's. And, mm-hmm. and I guess I'm a believer that, you know, yeah. Can you have some fluky results? You know, a kid gets lucky to win the set and then gets a couple breaks and a, and a, a lucky breaks in a 10 point tiebreaker. Sure. But, by and large, your your cream is going to rise to the top, whether it's 10-point breakers we're talking about, whether it's no-ad scoring. You play the biggest points the best, and and uh, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm good with it. Yeah, no, I, I like that, and I think this means the, the rest of this conversation is going to go well. So that 40 minutes of the doubles point, I think it's the best 40 minutes in all of tennis. Wimbledon no final, slam, yeah, just the Russian roulette, the rat race, the energy, every point matters. You can watch three matches at once without it feeling too stressful. All of those things. That said, you know, then you have a 40-minute to an hour lull where, yeah, you're feeding us pizza, all these different things. But, like, you know, five minutes off in the first set of singles doesn't really matter. I'm curious if you feel that lull on the court, if you feel that lull from a fan perspective as well, and if it concerns you at all. Yeah, of course you're going to have that, right? Because you, you yeah. go from an intensity where literally every single point matters coming down the stretch of a doubles point to, you know, love, love, one, one, two, two in a set. You know, it's not quite as impactful, right? So there's not that same amount of urgency. I will say, I think the, and I was a hugely against the no warm up with your opponent, but I feel yeah. like that's been a great change to the rule where you just immediately get started and shaving the time from 10 minutes down to five minutes uh, it has been really good too. So I, 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 I hear what you're saying and I agree. I don't know if you can avoid that, but um, you know, certainly uh, the, the, the rule changes that have come along with the no ad scoring have helped speed up that lull. And, and maybe minimize it where before it was like an hour where it was felt like nothing was going on. So. Well, I do have an idea of how to change it. And the way now, you do it, the first idea, let's go back to the old school format. Singles first, double second. And to me, the reason why you do that, A, there will be matches where you don't have to play doubles. But B, let's just say you make every double set worth one point. A 40-minute rat race to decide a dual match. Do you want to keep fans in their seats from start to finish? Play the doubles point last. Like, if it's coming down to a sudden death doubles, I don't think I'm leaving. Like, I don't think people are leaving. And I just, there's something to that where on the right days, you can skip it. But on the days you're playing it, it matters. And, like, to, to the end, everything matters. I think that helps the product. Well, particularly if you have the the rule where every doubles match counts as one point, and you played sure. it best out of nine. I mean, because then you know it takes a pretty rare exception to not get to the doubles. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be the one concern: is is you know, are you are you taking doubles away from fifty sure. percent or more of of college dual matches? If you are, then I'm not sure the juice is worth the squeeze. But uh, I think in a scenario like you're talking about, I think it'd be fun. I think it'd be in 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 your right. There would be a natural progression to the match where. You start with the lull and then you end with, you know, pretty consistent energy and emotion and, and consequence to what's going on. Yeah, no, I, I would love that. The other version is the simultaneous start where you do, you know, four singles, one doubles flight. In my version of a simultaneous start, we incorporate substitutions. And the idea of throwing in a substitution, if you could have the closer on your lineup, like let's just say you're playing in North Carolina and you go, Tristan McCormick, we're holding you up because we're going to be up 5-4 on the court and I want you coming in to serve out the match. You get the video board going. They bring in the closer music. The lights come off. <laughs> How does college tennis not benefit from that? 
That's awesome. Now that would be fun. I mean, I, I played that one time in a world team tennis format where you yeah. could sub in and that's pretty cool. But the only, the only thing with the, the, the simultaneous that I don't love is your best players are only playing one, one match, one event. Mm -hmm. And, and from a developmental standpoint, you know, again, talking about like an Axel Nev or sure. Cannon Kingsley or whatever, I mean, the more tennis they play, the better it is for, for everybody, right. For mm -hmm. them, for the fans, um, you know, for their teammates. And so that's the only, only flaw in that, in that format. But um, now look, all these things are fun to talk about. And I, I think at the end of the day, you, you, you touched on, it. I mean, college tennis is one of the best formats out there of, of any sport of any college sport. And so if we can properly market it and continue to deliver on what we're, what we're uh, doing here, um, you know, I think we can continue to grow the sport tremendously. I got last two for you. I know you're going to like this first one. And I think of all of the rules I've proposed, this is the one that I could actually get a majority of college coaches to agree on, and it's never 50% amongst college coaches. You can get to 49 every time. You're never going to get to 50. But I think this is the one. 90-second timeout. So at any point in the match, and you know there are those 15-minute stretches where your head is down, and you're just like, what are we doing today? <laughs> timeout saturate. Notre Dame brings it in for 90 seconds. All matches stop. We send them back out. Well, I think uh, I think your your boy Chuck Creasy used to used to do his own timeouts where he would dump a water jug in the middle of court and you know, have to have to pause the dual match for for cleanup on court three over there. But uh, no, I think that'd be that'd be fun. And and when you're in those moments when you're on a roll and the other coach calls timeout on you, like yeah, that would be that'd be fun. That'd I'm be fun. in on it. And then timeout, bring in the closer. Uh, yep. See, it's full circle here. And then the last one is a stupid one, I admit. But lawless lineups, because look, everyone's, there's chicanery in every lineup. And I think home match, again, four home match fans at a college tennis match mean more than the 80,000 screaming at the Notre Dame football game. <laughs> and so, you know, a, a well targeted four fans can Heck do yeah. more damage. And so, you know, with that in mind, to encourage home victories, and there's an NCAA study that, Tennis had the highest retention rate of any non-revenue sport. When you can get them in the door, they're going to stay, and they're going to keep coming back. So with that in mind, lawless lineups. Away team submits beforehand. Every home team gets to match up however they want. Ooh, that would be uh, that would be interesting. It feels like we have that to an extent already but um, <laughs> with certain programs. But uh, no, I mean, that would be uh, that would be ridiculous. I don't know if that would get through, but never it would uh, it would be it would be interesting. That's for sure. I'm just saying if it's like an April 6th and you're looking to, you know, funky up a match, you know who to call. I've got that's the right. cue. Yeah, the that's Rolodex right. <laughs> going here. Well, then last question for you. And, you know, again, this is something I want to give every coach the opportunity to do, because I think too many fans, players, parents don't have the opportunity to hear from you all. Give me the recruiting pitch. Why should I come to South Bend? Why should I join the Irish program? Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's a special place. I think first and foremost, special people here. Uh, obviously, we're we're building a program that we hope one day we'll will win a national championship and compete at a consistent top five in the country level. Uh, you know, you blend that and the opportunities that that go along with that on the on the tennis front with you know world class education, the top twenty academic ranking, and uh, you, you mentioned Alex Lawson. He's the the he was the player from the highest ranked academic school to compete in the U.S. Open this year. And so that's mm -hmm. something that we're really proud of and, and want to continue to build on. And uh, but like I said, first and foremost, it's about the people and, and uh, the experience that you have here.
Yeah. No, absolutely. I love to hear it. I forgot to mention the coin toss. Get rid of the coin toss. Head coaches, yes. one point, drop and hit. Winner gets to decide <laughs> the serving arrangements. Like, come on. You versus Ty? Come on. I love it. I love it. Find a backhand. Find yeah, backhand. I was going to say chip and charge from all of you. Who gets to the net first? Because no one's bending to hit a pass. Like, right, that's, right. Yeah, so that's not happening. And then, you know, three, you lose three in a row. Axel comes up to you, coach. We got to get you on the court. Like, this is unacceptable. And so yeah. it's accountability. That's what ball, I'm trying to do. Ball machine to sessions for the coaches the morning of the matches, right? Getting, yeah. getting the groove. Except for then you're calling the trainers out to court and it's like, oh, is the player right? It's like, no, coach is cramping. Like, he's just too much today. Yeah, he didn't hydrate right or hydrated too much the night before. Right. Um, yeah, that, that's half the fun. But again, coach, I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to chat today. Uh, sincerely grateful for your tolerance of all of our nonsense throughout the course of the year. And uh, again, wishing you and your team safety, health, success throughout the course of 2022. Alex, thanks for all you do for college tennis, man, and, and tennis in general. And, and anytime I can be a part of this, let me know. It's, it's uh, a lot of fun. And, and like I said, thanks for everything you do. Oh, I appreciate that, Coach. Well, be safe, be healthy, happy holidays, of course, to you and yours. All right, Alex, thanks. Yeah.